Hey there folks, it's me, Michael Bach, your Diversity Dude, and this is Talking to Canadians. What does it mean to be a Muslim woman, particularly one that wears a hijab or kneecap? I certainly don't know. Any information I have is anecdotal at best. When I do workshops, I share photos of Muslim women wearing the niqab and hijab, and I ask people for their reaction. Often people use words like oppression to describe what they see. But how many of us feel that way even though we've never actually spoken to a Muslim woman about why she wears a headscarf? Today we change that. On today's episode of Talking to Canadians, I have a chat with my friend Khadija Wasim. Khadija is 21 and wears the hijab. She's Pakistani by heritage, but grew up in Toronto and has already achieved amazing things at a very young age. In full transparency, Khadija and I sat on a board together, but it's because of that relationship that I knew this was a story I wanted to share with you today. Here's my conversation with Khadija Wasim. Khadija Wasim, welcome to Talking to Canadians. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Khadija, you are a hijabi-wearing Muslim, and you have spoken passionately about women's empowerment, mental health and for immigrants and indigenous communities, and you advocate for equal representation of women in various levels of government. Let's talk about it. I'm really, really excited to talk about it with you. Let's it's really, do it. Yeah, you're an underachiever, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so considering you're like 15... Um, how old are you? I can't remember. 21. 21. 21. You have done so much and I've done so little. Anyway, let's start with a bit of a walk through your life until now, which will be short since it's not that many years. Tell us uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Sounds good. Well, it always, uh, it's the first thing to say, I'm a middle child of five. Uh, oh. um, so it was, it's been, it's been a challenge. I'm kidding. It wasn't a challenge at all. Um, I've been very, very fortunate that my older siblings and my parents and everyone in my family is super, super supportive and empowering. Um, I come from a long history of matriarchs. Both of my grand- grandmothers were doctors and my grandfathers were very, really, really fierce allies. So I was, I grew up in a home that was like very focused on empowered women and making sure that you have a voice. And as a middle child, you really, really have to advocate for yourself mm-hmm. and assert your voice in order to have it. So that's sort of how um, it all became. My diplomacy my um, negotiation skills begin in my home. And it just it just furthered when I grew up in a neighborhood that was literally like a mini UN. So I my entire schooling, everything I've grown up in Toronto, um, literally in the, the the elementary school, it's feeder middle school, and then it's feeder high school. I literally did not move, much to my dismay at the time, but I'm grateful for it now. And my neighborhood was literally like a mini UN. So you were learning about so many different cultures and from different experiences of people that came from all over the world. And so anything that happened in the world, you learned about it and you were affected by it because there was people directly close to you that were all that were directly impacted. So yeah, that was sort of what began everything of um, going towards enlightenment, as I'd like to call it. That's amazing. That's and and Quite honestly, that's a bit contradictory to what people would expect about a Muslim family, uh, about women and their position in the family. So um, we're off to a great start. (laughs) So you're Muslim, you wear a hijab. And just for everyone's uh, reference point, the hijab is a head covering. It doesn't cover your face. Um, 
Tell us why. It was a journey for me. And I think um, I think people, it, it's something that ha- is of immense value to me in my religion. And it, all, it signifies many things. It signifies submission. It signifies modesty. And it's just something that I came to the conclusion of doing. And I wanted it to be a representation of my relationship with God. And it was my act of submission. And it, it, w- it didn't happen overnight. It happened when you think about it for a few months. And, and for me, it came to a point where I wanted to start that journey. And I wanted this to be the next step of knowing myself and strengthening my relationship with my, with my faith and with God. And for me, it's a lot of empowerment. It is of being able to be who I, who I am and be able to use this as a stepping stone in getting to know myself better. Um, and yeah, it, was, it wasn't something I think people wonder if it just happened overnight. And I guess the, that night, the, the day before you started, yes, it's, it's, it's a time of preparation, but it is something that happens gradually over time. Yeah, so let's unpack it. How old were you when you started wearing the hijab? I was 14. Okay. And so you hadn't grown up as a young person uh, wearing the head covering. Uh, other members of your family, I know you have one sister, do they all wear the hijab? Yes, uh, my sister does. My grandma, uh, my, my mother does too. I was jumping to my grandmother. My grandma did not wear a hijab for most of their life. Most of their, like, I think they only did it when they, they got like much older. Yeah. <laughs> and by much older, I mean like grandma stage right. um, that they decided to, to do the head covering, but they didn't have it on earlier on. Um, but for my sister, my sister started even younger. She was just obsessed with it. She really, really wanted to have it on. And she started in grade three almost. And it was oh. just something that she really wanted to do. And nobody could convince her to do anything otherwise. And even though she had started off in an earlier stage, I didn't feel any pressure for me to start um, until I was ready. So it wasn't like your parents were saying you have to do this? No. (laughs) You know, the other thing, the interesting thing about my parents is um, I remember one time mentioning to you about how I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And I I, I go back to my parents quite a lot. My, My mom's a naturopathic doctor and my dad's an engineer. And going to them and being like, what do you think I should do? And they'll say something like, do what feels right for you or do what makes you think you're growing it. And they're, they have such philosophical answers. So I feel like even if I asked them directly, like, should I wear hijab or not? They wouldn't give me a direct answer. <laughs> and it, it used to drive me insane because I'd be like, just tell me what to do. And they'd be like, no, I want you to be a good person, a good human being. It wasn't helpful, I, I promise. <laughs> parents, parents are not meant to give you a direct answer. That's not how it works. When the vaguer, the better. But so, see, with immigrant parents, though, people think that they tell you exactly what to do, right? Like, oh, right? Go, you're going to do this, you're going to do that next. I did not have the same sense of guidance from mine. <laughs> it is that the perception, uh, and, and admittedly, there, it does exist in some families, but that perception of control. And, and that's a misconception. But what... What would you say are some other misconceptions that you've seen uh, about uh, wearing the hijab? So um, one of the first things I was in, um, so I I did, I fast-tracked high school. So I did a few courses um, in online summer school. And when I did that, I had someone who asked me where I'd be heading off to school 
in the following term. And I was telling him about Rotman and he just, he like stepped back and he was so shot and he was taken aback. And he asked me, if you're smart enough to get into Rotman, why are you dumb enough to wear a hijab? And Ooh. I was so shook by that because um, normally the way that I feel like I carry myself in the world is, um, is very representative to who I am and what I believe in and what I think. I'd never been exposed to someone who was just outright so not nice. <laughs> so when he said right. that, I was like, and by the way, I'm a middle child, so I can like snap back fast. So when I snapped back, yes, I said yes. to him, I was like, it covers my, my head, not my brain, you know? So it's, 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 it's a matter of realizing that people really, really have this, um, this misconception about your intellect of who you are, whether you can speak up for yourself or not, because you're seen as like oppressed and you're seen as the other in society. But, um, and then the other thing people ask me all the time is whether I speak English. And I guess it works to my advantage because the bar is so low. <laughs> when I do speak English and I do stand up for myself and my, my truths and my community and whatnot, I guess I really go above and beyond that bar, don't I, Michael? <laughs> Absolutely. Do. I, I seen it in person uh there are a lot of misconceptions mm -hmm. about particularly muslim women um and we have to acknowledge that there are parts of the world where wearing the hijab or the niqab or the burqa is it's not a choice for some women they are, are are absolutely forced i'm thinking about places like iran afghanistan um but there are lots of women who, young women, who actively choose to uh, wear a hijab uh, as a sign of their faith, um, as a, a commitment to Allah and, and the Muslim faith. Mm -hmm. So you're currently studying uh, management and business at U of T, uh, Raman, as you mentioned. Yes. What what was the inspiration to join that field? So recently, I've sort of updated my um, entire degree title. It's finance management and business strategy. Ooh, that's sexy. <laughs> so what really inspired me to do that was I feel like a lot of times people want to go through you know, social work, or they want to go through a lot of the arts to be able to work in not-for-profits and um, go to those career paths. And I think that's amazing. And we need so many people to do that. But I really strongly feel that we need to understand our system of finance and management overall in society. And we need to be able to rise above those systems because a lot of the disenfranchisement of like individuals who are hyphenated like myself has a lot to do with their economic status. So they may be immigrants, they may be, um, you know, they could be children from single parent households and whatnot, and they're very socioeconomically disempowered. And I feel like being in this corporate sphere and like going that route for me is a way of being able to not just empower myself, but for for my communities and these different communities that don't have representation there. Um, and I, even now, like we're Canada is so very, very diverse, but our corporate sphere doesn't look as diverse as the rest of society. And I think it's just going to be a process for, um, a, a process of empowerment of different minorities to be able to encourage them that these systems of financial governance or these systems of, um, of economics or corporate Canada is very much something that they can be a part of and used to socioeconomically empower themselves, their communities and their families. So, so you said something I want to come back to hyphenated. Can you talk to me about what that means to you? 
So I feel like with um, people simplify our, our, our identities, like in general, it could be any identity. And I think um, hyphenated for me is a breakdown of the so many different things that represent me for me, whether it's me wearing a hijab or being um, from a Pakistani background. So I'm Pakistani hijab wearing Muslim Canadian, and there's so many intersections and hyphens to my identity. Mm-hmm. So because I lie in these intersections of society, there's no one word to describe me. Um, so I like using the word hyphenated to explain that it's not just one thing, it's going to go on for a bit in order for you to understand the intersections that I belong to and come from. Right. I like that. I like it. It's, it's, uh, it's a simpler way than saying intersectionality and, uh, and recognizing that you're not one thing, you know, you're not just Muslim. You're not mm-hmm. just a woman. You're, you're made up of a lot of different parts and it's important to recognize the complexity of that. Yes, for sure. And I think a lot of times people are confused by words like intersection and, um, they don't understand the full grasp of it. And I think, it's just a process of being able to find words that you can identify with. Absolutely. So, Khadija, tell me about Equal Voices Daughters of the Vote program. So you are uh, Equal Voices representative for Don Valley North. Um, tell me about the program. So I was the Daughter of the Vote delegate for Don Valley North in 2017. I am excited to tell you that there's been another program since then. Uh, so I've sort of alumni and graduated a little bit. It's added some wisdom to my years. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I... It was a program that was extremely, extremely heavily advertised online, and so very, so many people sent it to me. And I'm going to be honest with you, I was so hesitant to apply to it. I was like, if there were so many people that are doing so many amazing things, why would anyone choose me? Um, do I really need to invest my time in applying for this? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, just those doubts that come to your mind. And um, I had people literally, like, my I, I was in university, but I had um, my guidance counselor from high school message me, friends message me at like 11 p.m. before the deadline was due um, to make sure I had applied and whatnot. And so I feel like the program found me more than I found the program. Really, that <laughs> says something. So the people program, knew you should do this. Thank you. Yeah, I, I didn't know, you know. And I think the rest of the things that happened afterwards, I didn't know either. So Daughters of the Vote was a program by Equal Voice, which is an organization that works to empower women in policy, politics, and leadership. And it's about equal representation um, across different spheres of governance. And Daughters of the Vote was a program that commemorated 100 years of some women having the right to vote in Canada. So they chose one daughter from every riding in all of Canada, so every federal riding. And um, I just I was chosen to grow. And it was a one-week free trip to Ottawa. So now you know why I went. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, literally. That was, I'm, I'm not even kidding when I say that was like one of those things where I'm like, you're going to take me there for free, like back and forth. Um, all, I didn't know what the meals were at the time, but I was like, meals are covered. Oh my goodness. I am so there. Um, so that's, that was one of the things that I sold my parents on to. I'm like, you know what? They're paying for everything. And my parents, um, since I am the middle child, used to doing things that are a bit abrupt. Um, the last time I was, um, not the last time, but one of the opportunities that I had was I was a youth delegate to the UN and I was 16 at the time, 17 almost. So my parents drove me there 
So um, they drove you to the UN. They drove me to the UN because I was I'm really assuming the UN in New York. As yes, not the one in Geneva. So to give you an indication of how my parents were, but because it was a free trip and everything was covered, and there was going to be a bunch of other girls, unlike the UN trip where I was the only one. Um, uh, they were a bit more inclined to be like, okay, have fun. Um, so this is another thing. So people applied to be able to make statements in the house, right? And naturally, I didn't apply for that because I was like, why would anybody want to hear me speak? There's so many other people that are more qualified and better to speak than I am. And they have more experiences and whatnot. So I was like, I'm not going to apply for that. Um, but I was so moved. And by the way, like sitting in the house is such a surreal experience. It is, you really realize and you're overwhelmed by how much power is in the room, has been in the room, the history of the fact that I was one of the first hijabi women to sit in these seats, um, to think about how there were more women in that room then than have ever been elected in office in all of Canadian history. So there was a lot of emotions. It was a very, very emotionally overwhelming. And I'm going to be totally honest with you, I teared up more than once. And it was, it was very like, it was like camaraderie between the sisters and we call each other sisters, by the way. Um, and it was, it was just very, very intense um, but during, while I heard all these statements and I was listening to all my fellow daughters speak, I had this realization that like, if I didn't speak about the truths of my community, no one would. And there are lots of individuals that question my existence in Canadian society that can question. Um, and by the way, this was two months after mm -hmm. the Quebec mass shooting in 2017. And there were still people and frankly, the um, the conversation still exists today, whether Alexander Bissonnette, the Tibet mass shooter, is a terrorist or not. Um, and now we've realized that, you know, he inspired the New Zealand shooter, um, the Synodrod shooting that happened recently as well. But that was still a debate. And I realized if I didn't speak up about that and represent the truths of my community, then no one would. So <laughs> I raised my hand to ask a question. And I didn't actually think that I'd get asked to ask the question and I did. Um, and so I asked the Prime Minister about why it was taking so long for our government to condemn the existence of Islamophobia and to, to be very adamant about the fact that it was a terrorist attack. And while I had the floor, I also understood the importance of being an ally and lending my voice to the Indigenous communities that are have been on this land for many, many um, decades, sorry, many, many centuries before us um, and inquiring about the efforts that they required in terms of the lack of mental health supports provided to First Nation youths. They have the highest suicide rates in Canada and unfortunately they don't have the same access to mental health supports that I would in Toronto or um, in, in an urban centre even though they have a higher need for it. So there was a point where I asked the Islamophobia question and the prime minister was ready to be like, okay, and moving on. And then I stopped and I'm like, no, 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 right. I'm not done yet. Step back. I'm not done. <laughs> um, and, and I honestly, like it was one of those moments where you're just in that moment and you're true to yourself and it just happened. It was not pre-planned. I did not know I was going to do it because I would have worn more makeup if I had. <laughs> Um, and I didn't even know it was being recorded. That's how little I knew about government. Um, it wasn't until like 9 p.m. And by the way, I have 
not mentioning the, the, the plan, but I have really bad service. Um, so it wasn't until like 9 p.m. in the National Arts Center washroom that my phone buzzed like five, like for five minutes. And then I saw that there was like 500 notifications that the video of my question was literally on every single news channel in Canada and it was being debated on power and politics and, and um, so many news type situations. And I literally didn't know about it until like 9 p.m. Um, when I finally had service because I didn't have service in the house. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> so what did he say? What was his response to your grilling? So I think it was a different time for sure. But his response was about how we as Canadians can't let hatred and fearing of the other and you know, um, othering communities in Canada be a strategy in how we we assume office or we attain leadership positions. We can't let this be a political debate because if we start politicizing people's very identities, we're falling into a very dangerous trap of, you know, like hating and othering communities in Canadian society. Yeah, so it was it was it was much much more elo- eloquent, and it was much much longer. But I'm giving you a, a spark note version or Hadija Wasim version of that <laughs> response. It's a good version. It's a good version. That would be incredible to be standing there in the house, and, and I mean, in such a storied place, and to ask the prime minister a question. Really, you know, I'm sure he was taken completely aback that it was such a tough question. But those are the questions that our leaders need to be asked. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So why, I find it interesting that you're you're studying finance and business, but you are a real advocate for social justice. Why, why is that important to you? I think social justice is, it's human rights. It's the fundamentals of humanity and how we treat other people and and we all live our lives with certain roles and and I've been really really fortunate that I've had access to a lot of spaces where people that are young like me or people that have identities like mine are not normally welcomed to um, and I think that these these leadership opportunities are literally responsibilities that I have to the truths that my community experiences to make sure that when I'm at those tables, I have a a certain responsibility of making sure that I'm not just representing myself, but everyone who comes after me um, for the people that aren't here on the table and making sure that I'm not just monopolizing the conversation about just how I feel, because frankly, as a hijabi, as a Muslim, as a woman of color um, in these spaces, I'm a billboard for every person that they haven't interacted with, right? And by they, I mean anyone that hasn't normally interacted with someone who looks like me. Uh, So it's really, really important for me to lend my voice and my privilege to others. I know that, and I I know in my heart, and I firmly believe that I'm not doing this just for me, but it's for a collective. It's for the future generations of you know young immigrants or young women that were born and raised in Canada but are ethnic minorities and for me it's important to advocate for them because do you know by the way there's like a misconception of people they want to be the first like I want to be the first hijabi to do this or I want to be the first hijabi to do that but in my experience being the first to break a glass ceiling is really really difficult and painful it's so many times where you're bumping the, the glass door, but it won't break. And and I'm hopeful that by me navigating and advocating in these spaces, 
future generations, like even my children, won't have to feel the pain that these shards of broken ceilings inflict on you, that they're scratched mm-hmm. when they're rising up to their potential. And they're, they, they grow up in a world where their intersectionality isn't seen as a disadvantage. And instead, they're able to see it as a vantage point, and they're able to value these intersections in their identity and realize that there's so much um, goodness that they bring to the table by bringing those ideas and those different vantage points. So I think all of that and so much more, I get like emotional talking about it. (laughs) Um, But yeah. So let's uh, shift gears a bit and talk about mental health. You you asked the prime minister a question about mental health, particularly in, in marginalized communities. What 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 do you think are the most prevalent issues, particularly in indigenous communities? So yeah, so I didn't ask it ask it about marginalized communities. I asked it specifically about indigenous communities, and I think right. it's Sorry. the yeah. lack of support that are available on for for students and for youth um, to be able to access mental health care and mental health supports is a luxury for a lot of Indigenous communities in Canada. And I think that's very, very sad given that it's 2019. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's something that there's a lot of allocation of resources that, requ- that is required in that sphere. There's a lot of responsibility that falls on to all Canadians to recognize that these are the individuals whose lands we, we came upon and this is the circumstances that they're living in in 2019. And I remember in 2017, um, it was it was just after the Attawapiskat um, youth suicides that happened mm-hmm. in one single community where there were so many different youths that, um, that unfortunately couldn't fight any longer. And it's really making sure that we're able to unpack each region's concerns and be able to allocate resources according to that because there's so much intergenerational trauma and there's so much um there's so much that goes into those communities that really really needs to be changed and we really really need to invest in those communities so that they don't have to continue to suffer the way they are right now Mm -hmm. yeah so when you graduate, I can't believe I said that. When you graduate, <laughs> what what type of work do you do you see yourself doing? I mean, it's it's hard to imagine someone who's so passionate about sort of social justice, and I'll put that in air quotes, uh, doing finance work. But where do you see yourself going with this? I don't think either of that is mutually exclusive. I think I think my my drive to be part of that sphere is very by and large to do with the fact that that is a way of socioeconomically empowering yourself. And it's a way for, um, of reclaiming spaces that weren't generally open to women that looked like me in the past. And that you are able to be someone who cares about social justice work and be able to be in a role that is, that you want to be financially compensated or you want to um, be financially empowered while you're empowering others. Um, I think a lot of times people that are doing social justice work feel that they can't be paid for it or they need to do it for free. And um, and frankly, I have volunteered a lot and I realized that if you continue to allow that to happen, people use your emotional labor as something that's, that's cheap. 
um, that's something that's not valued. But I feel like when you're in that financial space, you're able to balance both of those and you're able to have that conversation with um, communities or access to people that wouldn't generally have that conversation otherwise. So in terms of when I graduate, though, (laughs) shifting on. um, So there's two people. So you've met me in real life, and you know that I love asking questions, whether it's like the president of CIBC or the prime minister of Canada or anyone in between. Um, So I would naturally, I'm obsessed and love Oprah. And then (laughs) I know everyone, Queen Oprah. And I also love Alam Rabbit. How, do you know Dr. Alamur Abit? Have you heard of her? I do not. So no. Dr. Alamur Abit is actually um, in the UN. And she is she was a really, really, really young doctor. She graduated and she is now one of the 17 Global Sustainable Development Goal advocates appointed by the Secretary General of the United Nations. That's a lot. And she's only 30. And I know, it's just so crazy. And I, I feel like I, I the way that I see life and I, the way that I see um, opportunities that the 29th, the, 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 the year that we live in and the time that we live in allows for are you're able to have different vantage points in your career. So she's a medical doctor, but she is also involved um, in the sustainable development goals with the UN. So I feel like you can sort of mix both of them. So an Oprah meets Dr. Alamarabit type situation is what I'm hoping for. Um, but I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of hurdles and a lot of different um, opportunities I'll say yes to before I get there. I feel like you will totally hurdle yourself over all of them. I um, hope so, too. So I want to go off on a bit of a tangent here because, well, it's my podcast and I can. Um, <laughs> you go. You, uh, you and I are, are part of the Canadian Club of Toronto. That's how we know each other. Um, and the other day we held an event called Being Brown Downtown, which was... Uh, a focused conversation on uh, race and racism and the impact it has on employment. And you were the host and I did some funny thank yous. That's <laughs> before. Um, why did that matter so much to you? I mean, you were about to plot. You were so excited. I why was. was exciting. But like, let's, let's, yeah. Why was it so exciting for you? I think it's, it's about understanding that representation matters. And I was, um, I was recently at a talk by Katie Taylor, who is the chairperson of RBC's board. And she was mentioning about how I, I don't remember the entire details of it. So I'm going to give you a little part of it that I do remember. <laughs> and she was talking about how, was it the five minute mile? Yes. Like the five minute mile was really, really hard. No, it was the four minute mile. I don't, clearly I don't run. There was a mile and some time. Yes. I, I think it was a four minute mile though. Okay. Um, but the four minute, whatever time mile, um, the first person who did it, it took them years and years to do it. But it only took 30 more days for the second person to be able to do it. And it took even less time for the third and the fourth and the fifth people to do it afterwards. And I think events like these are important to recognize that young people that are entering Canada's corporate landscape understand that they can make it and they can grow and it's not going to be easy. And it's, and it was really, really important to hear from individuals who went through so much at a time where there was no one that looked like them and they did so much, but they, but they sort of worked on paving the way for future generations, like people like myself to be able to do it a little bit easier. And it's not like a smooth sailing road just quite yet, but it is considerably easier than it was before. And I think for me, it was so, so important to have that representation 
on on the board, especially on the board that we sit on in its 122 year old, year old history, there had never been an event like that. Um, Canada didn't just randomly begin looking like this recently. It obviously progressed over time, but in all of the, the club's history, we'd never had this candid conversation about about diversity in the corporate sphere. And it was really, really important for me to showcase the the many people that are doing extraordinary work and they they went through so many odds to be the partners or the vice presidents or the you know the partners at Deloitte and PwC at Growling WLG, the, the, I'm just naming off the people, or, or TD. It's it's to show that there is a path and there are people that have done it. And it's like the the minute mile thing that I mentioned earlier. Like mm-hmm. Once you see someone else do it, you can imagine yourself doing it. Sure. And there's so much power in that. So that's why I was so, so excited. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a very powerful event. Uh, um, but it, I think it's, it, for me, it really is this point of, I need to see myself to know that I can succeed. I don't, I, to your point, I don't necessarily want to be the first through the glass ceiling. For sure. Uh, uh, and, uh, and maybe I will, or maybe I won't, but uh, it's so important to be able to see that. And celebrate that, right? Like it, it was yeah. also a celebration of all of their, their achievements. It wasn't just like, oh, you know, woe is life. I had to do this. It's more of like, it's about resiliency. It's about building, um, building forward and being able to, to grow through those experiences so that you're able to pass that wisdom on. And I think that the reality is that for a lot of people that look like me, mm-hmm. um, white, not just handsome, um, <laughs> that we've, you know, we've always seen those faces. We've always mm-hmm. had those, um, those people to look up to. So it's, it's hard for us to see why it's so important, um, but it is clearly. So one of the things that um, when, when, when I thought about, being in these spaces, I realized really quickly that I was changing what leadership looked like. Mm-hmm. People did not expect person, people who were who looked like me to be associated with even the school that I go to or the board that I sit on um, or the different opportunities that I'm a part of. People didn't associate that. And even the backlash that I got from my asking the prime minister a question had a lot to do with what I looked like. Um, had I looked different, the question wouldn't have raised as many eyebrows as it did. Um, so it's 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 really going back to claiming those spaces and empower empowering people to realize that they deserve to be in these spaces as much as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we always like to wrap up our uh, our conversations with the same three questions. I call them the light and fluffy. So who are your heroines or heroes? Okay, this is so stressful. You think it's light and fluffy? It's not, okay? Um, Nobody's judging you. I feel like I'm doing like an ostrich speech. I've been like my parents, Malcolm X, Ilhan Omer, Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) But I I, I honestly think that there's little heroes and heroines everywhere. It's about finding them in your life. It doesn't necessarily have to be like, I love Malcolm X and Ilhan Omer and Oprah and all these amazing people, but it's really, really being able to find the little acts that people do and being able to see that they're inspiration as much as anyone that's made it, you know? So what are your biggest pet peeves or what is your biggest pet peeve? Okay. Grammar. 
Okay, grammar, and then especially when you're like chatting, right? Like or texting. There's there's very few letters. Like I literally read someone who wrote yeah as in y e a, and I was literally like h is not that difficult. Do you know what I mean? It just you just it's needed really one hard. h. Um, and then the other thing that really stresses me out is if I have like a crisp brand new book and someone like writes on it or folds a paper, it's like no, please don't. Yeah, I it's I get it. I totally yeah. get it. Thank Those are you. good ones. Thank Those you. Those are good ones. So last but not least, what is your happiest and or guiltiest this pleasure? Is, <laughs> I'm exposing myself, but I'm actually like obsessed with a few things that are far beyond my years, which are tea, teacups, and nice carpets. <laughs> so okay. like I have this entire cabinet filled with different teas. And then like, I'm really into like, you know, like those like old posh teacups. I've swiped all of my grandma's old teacups like they're all bougie they're all nice and they're painted and they're nice and adorable and they're colorful and I'm obsessed with them clearly you can tell and then the other thing I'm I like I love are like nice hand woven carpets and I really I try to like I also love focusing on companies that do it with ethical labor and all that type of stuff but there's just so much history in carpets I fully intend on stealing my mom's it's not stealing if I call dibs by the way so I should take that word stealing back but calling dibs on my mom's wedding carpet it's so gorgeous i just can't yeah i'm weird (laughs) it's not weird it's fantastic i love it i love that appreciation for quality uh it's a little weird i'm not gonna lie you were amazing um thank you for for joining us today and for sharing your story i have known you were amazing for some time but uh, but now the rest of the world does it makes me feel good knowing that people like you are in our world because, uh, you know, I'm nearly a hundred and, um, I know that you're going to make Canada even better place after I am uh, pushing up daisies. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I really appreciate people like yourself whose allyship makes me be able to do the stuff that I do. And I really, really, really appreciate it because it's very important as well. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Wow. If you ever question if you've done enough to make the world a better place, have a conversation with a 21-year-old who has already grilled the prime minister. I feel like I've done a lot of good in my life, but I pale in comparison to that girl. What I love about Khadija is her passion and how she owns who she is. She has no shame in her identities, and that is so impressive to see in a woman of her age, let alone any age. Clearly, her parents did a great job. She's such a great example of what it is to be a young Muslim woman. The world needs to hear her story and others like it to demystify the Islamic faith, and I suspect we're going to be hearing a lot from her in the future. That's all for today's episode of Talking to Canadians. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my guest, Khadija Wasim for sharing her story. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast through your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. Connect with me through social media. I'm Diversity Dude MB, And don't forget to stay up to date with everything CCDI is up to by visiting our website at ccdi.ca. Thanks again, and I'll be talking with you again soon, Canada. Canada.